This morning, we are in the book of Nehemiah. And so if you would like to go ahead and turn there, and if you're new to Bible study, you may just want to start off by just opening your Bible right to the middle. That'll get you to the Psalms, and then move back towards the front of your Bible, and you'll quickly run into Nehemiah. As you're turning there, I'm going to ask if Beth Caskey would come up and read for us today our scripture passage. She's going to read chapter 1, 1 through 3, but we're going to be a little bit further. This is Beth Caskey, administrative assistant to David Klein, our executive pastor, and also me, and so um, for life groups, and so very thankful for Beth. You go ahead, Beth. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Han and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Amen. Thank you, Beth. Let's, let's pray before we get started this morning. Lord, I'm come before you this morning. And Lord, we, as we have already done, Lord, we praise your name. And I praise your name, Father, for your great love for us and that you would send your very own son, Jesus, that he would come to this earth and he would die, he would be buried and he would be raised from the dead, that we might have the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of everlasting life with you. And so, Lord, we praise the name of Jesus this morning to your glory over this place and in this place. Lord, I pray over the next few moments, literally moments is all we have together this morning, but minutes and moments, Lord, that you, God, through your word and your spirit, Lord, would open our eyes that we might behold your glory. So, Lord, would you do that this morning? Or would you open our eyes, Lord, that we might behold you? God, we pray it. We're desperate. We pray it, Lord, in your name and for your namesake, Lord Jesus. Amen. Wall, walls and gates. Walls, according to Merriam-Webster, this is just one definition, it's an enclosure chiefly for defense. And gate is an opening in a wall or a fence. Normally, it may be a gate is a wall or opening in a city or castle entrance, often in a defensive structure. Walls and gates. So definition I, I came up with is just a means of protection from the danger which lies on the other side or from the danger which could possibly be from within. When our family lived in Central Asia, we had a house much like uh, all the rest of the houses there in the, in the city that we lived in, and it had, um, much like all of theirs, a gate that surrounded it or in a wall that surrounded our house. It was just typical of, that, of, of their architecture and their place that you would have a gate and a wall around your house. Our, our wall, even though the house itself was small, our wall was massive. I don't know, like what they were trying to protect on the inside. But the wall itself is probably three feet thick. 
this wall that surrounded our house. It was about nine feet tall, made out of brick. And then on top of it, there were these shards of glass that someone had put and cemented into the top of this wall just for protection or in case someone tried to come in. And if that wasn't enough, down below the wall, we had a hedge of rose bushes just to say, hey, good morning and welcome. You know, so I mean, it was massive. And then our gate was massive. It was metal, huge locks and bolts that bolted this thing shut. I can't tell you how many times Cindy said, I hate that wall. <laughs> I hate that wall because we couldn't see your neighbors and you couldn't see life on the other side. There's life going on out there, but you're just kind of inside this wall all the time. And she goes, I hate that wall until one night. And uh, our city and our country went through a revolution. And so the people were, it was a coup. They were taking back over the government. And that was happening in our city. It's happening in our city. The embassy had already evacuated all of their non-essential personnel. And we decided to stay. And I remember us standing there one night. And we're just sitting, standing in our, what was then a kitchen, kind of like a kitchen area. And there's this huge window and I'm standing there in front of this window, and Noah, who's about five years old, was standing there with us. And then Cindy was standing there. And we were just staring out at this window in the night, in the dark. All you can see, because three feet is our wall. So all we're looking at really are bricks. I mean, we're just kind of standing in our window, just looking at these bricks. And I'll never forget, because you can hear all the gunfire and the things going on. And we're just standing there, and all of a sudden, just in that moment... Cindy just looks over at me and goes, it'd be nice to have about two more feet on that wall, wouldn't it? <laughs> After all the time she hated that wall, I was like, that's the absolute truth. Today, Nehemiah gives us account of the rebuilding of the wall and the gates of Jerusalem. Nehemiah is a Jew, just as Beth was just reading. He was living at a time when the walls of Jerusalem have been destroyed and its gates have been burned. The exiles, those who were taken into Babylonian captivity or in, taken by Babylon and exiled out of Jerusalem and Judah, have been returning to Jerusalem under the proclamation of the Persian king Cyrus for the purpose of rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed. It's now 446 B.C., and we are in the 20th year of the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. It's November, December, so the king is in his winter residence at the citadel of Susa. Now, if you were here last week, we were in Esther. It's the very same setting as far as in Susa at the citadel. It's just now Artaxerxes has become king. Nehemiah has received a visit from his brother, who has returned from Judah with news from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah's brother tells him, the remnant, those who survived the exile, are in great trouble and great shame. The wall is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Jerusalem is in a vulnerable situation. They're open to threats from the outside and disunity on the inside. Our church is in a vulnerable situation. 
We're a remnant. We're desperate for unity and love for one another. We have open positions on our staff. And at the moment, we have no senior pastor. But I believe Nehemiah has a word for us today. And I pray it will be an encouraging word and one that moves us in the right way and in the right direction. We're going to take a look at Nehemiah's three initial responses to the news from Jerusalem. We're going to also take just a moment or a few moments to look at his prayer because it's a model prayer for us. And then we're going to make one last note of application. We're going to focus our attention this morning on chapter 1. And then we're going to briefly comment on the verses, some of the verses in chapter 2. Nehemiah's first response. He wept and he mourned for days. Nehemiah responded when he heard the news of Jerusalem with weeping and mourning. The walls being down and the gates being burned reminded Nehemiah of the sins of his people and the righteous judgment of God. And he literally mourned for days. The word mourn is a, is a unique word. It carries a sense of, in this case, godly sorrow. Actually, godly sorrow over the sins of others. Actually, such sorrow that leads to confession as if the sins were your own as well. There is a realization that God's judgment comes upon the body as well as the individual, and it creates a sense of urgency to cry out for God's mercy. Nehemiah reminds us of the value of experiencing godly sorrow individually for the sins of the body. Nehemiah's second response, he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He fasted and he prayed before the God of heaven. Godly sorrow leads to a sense of urgency to fast and to pray. Knowing that the sins of a few can lead to the judgment of God on the whole, it motivates and urges God's people to come before Him and fast and pray. Wayne Grudem says of fasting, fasting is usually done in times of intense supplication before God. Repentance, worship, and seeking His guidance. I think those are applicable to us today. In times of intense supplication, repentance, worship, and seeking His guidance. He also says fasting has an effect on our relationship with God. It increases our sense of humility and dependence upon the Lord. We are reminded to sacrifice ourselves to Him. It disciplines us to refrain from sin, and it heightens our alertness to spiritual things. It expresses to God an urgency and earnestness in our prayers. Lastly, Wayne Grudem says, in this sense, fasting is especially appropriate 
when the spiritual state of the church is low. Nehemiah reminds us of the value of fasting and praying. And I want to challenge you this morning. As we've been called to pray and fast during these days for our body, I want to challenge you this morning that we are desperate for these two responses in our body. We're desperate for mourning, we're desperate for prayer, and we're desperate for fasting. The bulk of this passage in in chapter 1 is actually just Nehemiah's prayer. So he tells you he weeps, he mourns, he prays, he fasts, and then he says, here's my prayer. And then he just prays. It's just like it drives him to prayer. He's actually writing this almost like a memoir. And these are Nehemiah's words. He's just writing it in first person. This is me. He's saying, I mourned, I wept, I am continuing to pray and fast. And then he says, he just burst into prayer. And so we get a model prayer of Nehemiah. And it's a model prayer for us. And I think it's a good prayer for us. Because it's not only mentioned in Nehemiah, but it's also almost word for word. A few more words actually added to it from Daniel 9. When Daniel prays, as the Medes and the Persians take over Babylon, he prays. And it's almost the same exact prayer as Nehemiah prays. And then we also see a very similar prayer prayed by Solomon in 1 Kings when he dedicates the first temple. So this form of prayer is a model. You may have heard of it before. It's called, people refer to it in its acronym as ACTS. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. But thanksgiving, I think there's also declaration. It just doesn't make the acronym work as well. But there's adoration, confession, thanksgiving declaration, and supplication. And we're going to look at each one of those aspects. It's Daniel, I mean, as Nehemiah praised these in this passage. So here's how Nehemiah starts his prayer in adoration. He declares that God is awesome. He declares that God is awesome. He calls him the Lord God of heaven. And in this phrase, he not only acknowledges that God rules over all things as the God of heaven. Literally, he sits in heaven above all things, ruling over all things. But then he adds the word Lord or Yahweh, because God of heaven in that time would have been typical of all gods. They would have called most gods God of heaven. It's very popular amongst the Persians. So almost to distinguish him as the God, the only God, he adds in there Yahweh God, the one true God. There is no other God, he says, than he. And so he declares that Lord, God of heaven. And then he declares him great and awesome. Awesome usually describes something that brings you to great admiration or could bring you to great fear, like in awe. I've had many people tell me that when they went to visit the Grand Canyon, I've never seen the Grand Canyon, so I have to go on their word on this. But when I hear people come back from the Grand Canyon, they almost always are in awe at its wonder and its size and its grandeur. And they say, it was awesome, breathtaking, magnificent, stunning, stirring. Louis Giglio, I don't know if you've ever listened to Louis Giglio, a pastor, 
number of years ago, he preached a sermon where he talked about the glory and the grandeur of God, and he would go into depth about the universe and the expanse of the universe and the galaxies of the universe, basically to depict God as one who is awesome in power over all the universe. And then he also would talk about Mount Rainier in a funny way, actually. So he had to take a test on Mount Rainier, and he studied and studied and studied for this test. And he gets there, and he starts filling out all the questions. And he's like, turns it over. He's like, so he put on there, the things you didn't ask me about Mount Rainier. And he starts naming off the things about Mount Rainier that he didn't get asked. But he said, it wasn't until I actually visited Mount Rainier and I saw it for myself that I literally wept at its grandeur and magnificent awesomeness. But why does Nehemiah declare God awesome? It tells us Nehemiah declares God awesome because he keeps covenant with his people and his love is steadfast. Some of you are studying Ruth right now. That's a hased, steadfast kindness, steadfast love, faithfulness. For Nehemiah, his thoughts reflect back to Moses, actually, preparing the people to enter the promised land. And this is what Moses is talking to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land, the land that God has said, I will give to you. He had promised it to Abraham. He's fulfilling it now in the people of Israel as he's brought them out of Egypt and take them into the land. This is what Moses says. And this is why Nehemiah is referring back and thinking on these things and saying, our God is awesome. That's what Moses says. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, and it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you or chose you, because you were few. In fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has now brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So know, therefore, this is what Moses said, know, therefore, the Lord your God is God, Yahweh, only God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand, thousand generations. And then he says this, as you go into land, do not dread them for the Lord your God is in your midst and he is great and he is awesome, awesome God. We must pray fast, acknowledging and declaring that our God is great and awesome. He rules over all things. He is the only God, and his love is steadfast. We declare the awesomeness of God. Mm, I can't pass it. Mm, I was about to move on, guys. I can't do it. I got to read a passage of scripture to you. Colossians chapter 1, I'm sorry. Oh. When we pray, this is where I go. When I want to just, I go, we praise God. He's a delivering God. And then I go to, because he's fulfilled that. He's fulfilled that deliverance for us in Christ Jesus. 
And so when I pray, I go to this passage, and I just want to read it to you in adoration and praise of our God. But this is what it says. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. God, you're awesome. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. <laughs> he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, because he's awesome. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him <laughs> to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Awesome. Awesome. Our God is awesome. And then, it's like when you come out of the presence of God, almost like, like David was saying Isaiah, when he sees the presence of God, it leads you to go, oh Lord, woe is me. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. And Nehemiah does the same confesses his sins. Nehemiah confesses his sins, his father's sins, and the sins of the people. Nehemiah takes responsibility. He confesses that not only have the Jews, his people, sinned against God, but he himself and his father's house have sinned against God. All have sinned against God and fallen short of the glory of God. Nehemiah confesses that they have acted very corruptly, he says, against God. And they have not kept God's commandments, statutes, rules that God himself had commanded to Moses to give to his people. And then he quotes again. He's just quoting back to Deuteronomy. He just has these passages of Scripture in his mind. He's quoting them back to him of the consequences of not obeying these commands. And he knows his scriptures, guys. He is praying the scriptures and he's acknowledging with God his sin in line with God's words and God's truth. And he even declares God's judgment righteous. It's a righteous judgment. He looks back and he says, oh God, this is what you said. I will scatter you among the nations. I will unsheath the sword after you and your lands shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Your high and fortified wall in which you trusted will come down through all your land, and they shall besiege you in all of your towns through all of your land, which the Lord your God has given you. If you studied Habakkuk at all, did it a couple of nights ago in the evening service, and if you're, you were in my life group, now Jay has taken that life group. Thank you, Jay. But if you were, the last book that we studied was Habakkuk. And we were in it for a while, guys. I'm talking white beards. We're still in Habakkuk. You know, I mean, we were in there a long time. And all the life group said amen. But I'm telling you, it was good. Because Habakkuk was crying out to God, there's injustice in the land, there's injustice in the land, there's injustice in the land, God. When will you act? And God then declares, I will act. And he says, it will be through the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And it terrifies Habakkuk because he knows these peoples. 
when it says their walls would come down, they were skilled. They would literally mount up dirt, mound it up to overtake the walls. The walls could not stand again. The people inside literally taking apart their homes and putting the wood up against, trying to fortify that you cannot stand against the hand of God. And when he has called the, Chal- the Chaldeans to come, they could not stand. And his promise was fulfilled. Nehemiah agrees with the Lord concerning his sin and declares what God has done to his people is righteous. God has acted according to his words. We, coming before God, must first praise him for who he is, and then we must confess our sins and pray in accordance with God's words concerning our sin, and we must acknowledge the judgment of God is righteous. Words of David come to mind from Psalm 51. David, after being caught by Nathan, a prophet, concerning his sin with Bathsheba, he literally just cries out to God, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you, what God, you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, and my mother even conceived me. Adoration, confession, and then all of a sudden, Nehemiah moves into thanksgiving. Nehemiah then declares the promises of God to restore his people. This is where his hope comes to life. Having returned to God and acknowledging his sin before God, now Nehemiah declares and receives as truth what God will do on behalf of his servants in accordance with his covenant-keeping character and his steadfast love. He will restore them to the place that he has chosen, and he will make his name to dwell there. It's a good phrase. He will make his name to dwell there. God's promise to his people is if they return to him, keep his commandments, do them, gather, he will. He will gather them from the uttermost parts of heaven. He will bring them to the place that he has chosen. He will make his name dwell there, and God himself will restore his glory and his honor. Moses told him the same thing. He's looking back again, the promises from Deuteronomy. And so here's Moses from Deuteronomy. When you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore you. He will restore your fortunes and have mercy, mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And he says, These are the ones in whom you have redeemed, O God. Nehemiah declares to God that these, these peoples, God, these are the ones you redeemed out of Egypt by your great power and by your strong hand. And God, you have made a covenant that this people might be your people. He's claiming these things, giving thanks and declaring them. God, these are your promises to your people. And then he declares, these are the people, Lord, that delight to fear your name, to obey your commands. We too, when we pray, we move from confession to thanksgiving and declaration, and we declare the promises of God. Can I give you just a few of these promises that we can pray? <laughs> Ooh, I, don't, I almost passed over these in the second service. I'm glad I didn't because my heart's rejoicing. First John, this is promise. 
The blood of Jesus, his son, what? Cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of whom? The whole world. Amen. First Peter, almost just a reflection back to what you just heard of Moses declaring over the Israelites. Listen to what Peter now says of us, the church. You, church, were ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are what? Believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in whom? God. What does he declare to you? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a what? A people of his own possession. We declare these things, who we are. That you, church, may proclaim his excellencies, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... We declare that, Lord, once I was not a people, we, doesn't make sense. we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Oh. The people are going back to establish the walls of Jerusalem. They're raising up the temple of God. They're reestablishing the people of God, but it would not be fulfilled in them. God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus, and there, there is a greater hope. Can I tell you there's a greater hope than that Jerusalem that we look forward to today? Revelation 21. I don't have time to read it. <laughs> no, I want to. But when you get home, you, it, would be, it would be worth your while to pick up the Bible. Go to the last chapter. Look up Revelation 21. Read those scriptures, 9 through 14, 22, 27, because it talks of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven full of glory with its high walls and its 12 gates that are open all the day and there is no night. And who comes into those gates? The nation worship. Oh. By its light will the nations walk. There's no, there's no temple in that place for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are there. Has no need for sun or moon to shine because the glory of God gives us its light. And the nations walk by its light. Mm. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into there nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. After this sermon, not yet, after this sermon, we're going to give an invitation. If you are sitting here this morning and you are not for sure that your name is in that Lamb's book of life, when that invitation is given, it's for you. You come this morning. You come this morning. 
so that you might know the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The fourth and final element and the third response of Nehemiah are both together. The fourth element of our prayer should lead us now into supplication, our request before God. And for Nehemiah, his third response was action. He moved to action. Nehemiah makes his request known to God, and Nehemiah makes his request to the king. <laughs> Two requests, one to God and one to the king. After all this, it comes down to one humble request and one courageous action. Nehemiah must stand before the king and make his request to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and the gates. And he's fearful. He says, I'm very much afraid. And there is real danger in him because Persian kings were not known for rational behavior or actions. They were irrational kings. And this king, Artaxerxes, had actually possibly been the one who, who gave the edict to stop the building of the wall, which is why the walls are still broken down and the gates are still burned. And so Nehemiah prays, Oh God, give success to your servant today. Grant me mercy in the sight of this man. That's his request. Oh God, give success to your servant today. Grant me mercy in the sight of this man. And then he adds this one little piece. By the way, I was cupbearer to the king. It's almost like he gives you so much at the beginning of all the setting and who's involved and brothers and fathers and kings and timings and winners. And, but he doesn't tell you this one little fact. It's almost like he's sitting there. He knows who he is. He knows where he stands and what position he's been placed. And it's almost like he's crying out for God. And finally he says, I know why you placed me here. That I might make this request to the king and rebuild the wall. And so almost like he's just saying, he says everything he says in his prayer, and then he just says, I'm cupbearer to the king. It's like he knows the weight of that that's upon him. It reminds us again of the same truth as last week, that God is working all things together for good to accomplish his will and his purposes for the good of his people. God placed Nehemiah as cupbearer to the king, literally as close as you can get to the king. The king trusted him, entrusted his life to him every day. He tasted the wine to make sure there wasn't poison in it. So he literally would taste it, give it to the king so the king could drink. He heard the conversations of the king around the table. He knew the conversations that were happening. God had moved Nehemiah's heart to mourn. He had moved Nehemiah to fast and pray, and he had placed Nehemiah as cupbearer to the king. And he gave Nehemiah wisdom for timing and tact. And now he gives Nehemiah courage to act. He says, I pray to the God of heaven. This is a different prayer. This is months later. He gives his long prayer, consistent prayer. I continue praying. And then in the moment, when he knew it was that moment, he shoots at what some people call the arrow prayer. You know, the, the quick one in the moment, right? I pray to God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king granted me what I asked. Why? For the good 
hand of my God was upon me. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. I pray, even as I say that simple little phrase, the good hand of my God was behind, that your minds right now, and I'm going to help you, will recall the character of God that he has revealed this morning through this passage. Listen to this. He is the God of heaven, the one and only God who rules over all things. He is the awesome God, the one who delivers his people with his strong hand. He is the God of righteous judgment. He is the God of steadfast love. He is the God of mercy. He is the God of Almighty, he is the Lamb of God. He is the sovereign God. He's the God who is good. <laughs> He's the good God. The good hand of my God was upon me. Our church is in a vulnerable place. And I pray, may we together pray and ask God, God, would you move on our hearts to mourn and to grieve what grieves your heart? Would you move us to urgency, to fast and pray for this body? Would you move us to action and obedience and courage and wisdom in line with and along with your leading and your sovereign hand and your good hand? Lord, <laughs> we pray, right? Establish your name in this place, Lord, establish your name through us amongst the nations. <laughs> May it be so. O God of heaven, our awesome God, may your will be done. Let's pray. God, you're good. <laughs> we praise you. We praise you. And Lord, we ask, even this morning, God, would you move our hearts? Would you move our hearts, Lord, to mourn? And would you move our hearts to pray and to fast? And would you move us to obedience, Lord? And then, Lord, would you cause your name to be established in this place? And may people say, the good hand of the Lord rests upon them. The good hand of the Lord. God is awesome, they will say. Oh, Lord, establish your name in this place. <laughs> establish your name in this place and through us. Please, Lord, we're desperate. And amongst the nations, through us. We pray it. In your name, Lord God. Amen. Amen.